0: Good morning. Today is April 26, 2020. This is the We Be Imagining Podcast. I'm J. Khadijah Abdurrahman. It's 10.08 Eastern Standard Time, and I'm here with Ilan Mandel. What's up, Ilan?
1: Hey, Khadijah.
0: And my co-host, Stanley Munoz.
2: Hey, good morning, everybody.
0: Well, really good morning to you. What what time is it in uh, San Diego?
2: So it is a nice 7 a.m. in Southern California. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So kudos to mm-hmm. you for getting up at 630 to get set up for the podcast today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really excited that we have the authors of Data Feminism. And feel free to uh, correct me, Catherine, if I mispronounce your last name, but I have Catherine mm-hmm. Ignazio. She's an assistant professor of urban science and planning in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT. She's also the director of the Data Feminism Lab, which uses data and computational methods to work towards gender and racial uh-huh. equity, particularly as they relate to space mm-hmm. and place. Um, how are you doing today, Catherine?
3: I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: Well, thank you so much for making the time on a Sunday morning. And we also have Lauren F. Klein, an associate professor in the Department of English and Quantitative Theory and Methods at Emory University, where she also directs the Digital Humanities Lab. She's currently at work on two major projects, Data by Design, which offers an interactive history of data visualization from the 18th century to the present, and Vectors of Freedom, which explores how quantitative methods can help to identify new actors and new pathways of influence in the archive of the abolitionist movement of the 19th century United States um how are you doing today lauren
4: i'm doing okay so far so good thanks also for having us on the
0: show um and welcome to your kids who are here also in the background Um, yeah my
4: older daughter has pulled up with her ipad and is sitting right next to me and my younger daughter is arranging my papers in the background and by arranging i mean destroying (laughs)
1: kids have really interesting organizational principles when it comes to like where things should go
0: and maybe starting with you lauren do you want to before we get into um the kind of the thesis of your book that just came out do you do you want to share a little bit about what the experience of shelter sheltering in place has looked like for you
4: sure uh I don't. You know, it's been hard. I I feel like the experience has been. You know, it's hard for everyone, but each in their own way. Um, You know, we've got two kids. We're in Atlanta. Atlanta's in Georgia, Um, so we're sort of a blue oasis and a red state, which makes for sort of an interesting dynamic. Um, You know, we're fine. We have jobs. Um, You know, we can do social distancing, but we're sort of surrounded by people in communities who sort of like either can't make those choices or have the government actively sort of preventing them from making those choices. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird place to be. (laughs) That's, you know, I don't know if I have anything profound to say, but that's, that's how it feels.
0: And are your kids of the age, do they have to do virtual school while you're working?
4: My older kid does virtual school. Um, and Actually, I have to say her School is doing a lot better job than I think my husband and I are doing. We're also doing virtual school, but on the teaching side. And um, it all happens at the same time. And first graders need a lot more one-on-one attention than college students do. So uh, that's been winning out. And then I have a younger daughter who's two and a half, and she's just a chaos agent. She just runs around the house, uh, <laughs> destroying everything in her site. <laughs>
0: You know, play play is a way through learning. And what about you, Catherine? I know that you do. You have one or are
3: more kids at home. I have three. Um, yeah, they're a little older though, which I think makes the for slightly less chaos. So they're six, nine, and eleven. Um, and yeah, it's just it's been a roller coaster. Like my uh, partner lost his job uh, as part of the kind of first part of the wave of shutdowns and COVID things, but then really amazingly got a job the next week so like you know we now are back in wow. we, we were like for a week we we're like what's going to happen to us from a financial perspective but now we're back we have financial security which I'm grateful for um but yeah it's been complicated um yeah it's been complicated to have uh the kids at home to try to do the homeschooling, which our teachers in our district have been super generous, but then it also means we get like literally, you know, ten different resources a day. And even as a tech person, I feel totally overwhelmed by the amount of digital platforms I have to log my children into. <laughs> so like, <laughs> that's honestly been one of the most challenging things. Um, so yeah, it's just it's a weird it's a weird time. But at least now I feel like things for us at a family level have settled into like a new normal. Like this is just how it is and um but i but i still i don't have a great answer for when my daughter says things like mama why don't we go anywhere anymore (laughs) you know um, this is i think she doesn't quite get the coronavirus as a as a thing but yeah strange days
0: Yeah, for real. My youngest daughter is always like, when is the corona going to end? Is it over this morning? And I feel like we're (laughs) at a point where they're realizing that I have no idea. Like I'm just wearing a facade of calm um, (laughs) at at
3: best. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard. And I think we all just want to make plans. Like I was just talking to my family yesterday about a camping trip that we had all planned, but none of us can make any decisions because we don't know if the campgrounds will be open or if they'll feel safe to travel here from Arizona, you know, like, it's just, it's really a hard time.
0: And can you talk a little bit, let's talk a little bit about data feminism, you know, kind of what is the thesis of the book and what is it like to release it kind of in this moment? What does book touring look for you, look like for you guys? I saw that you were on data and society, um, kind of what, is there ways that you are reframing or reimagining kind of the book in this moment?
3: Yeah. Um, so it's been a funny ride from the book touring standpoint. We, our launch party was that week where everything was shutting down and we were like, okay, we're going to get through the launch party at the least, and then we'll be able to, you know, move forward and you know, who knows what will happen. But then our launch party ended up getting, it was a like physical event at MIT press bookstore in Cambridge. And, um, It ended up getting canceled like 24 hours beforehand, luckily giving Lauren enough time to cancel her flight so she don't fly up here, which is good. Um, But we pivoted. We did a virtual book launch at the same time. And at least for my part, I felt really sad that week because all of the cancellations of all the talks we had lined up came in. But then the flip side is that we've been setting up all these other and different Zoom talks. And those have been going great. And their audiences, who we never would have talked to, and then Lauren, you should talk about the reading group, which is like going really well and uh amazingly. It's like a great idea. Yeah, we decided to
4: um do this reading group. Um so we, you know, one of the things we realized is that when you do a book talk, it's sort of like it's the overview, right? Um and so you give the big picture and you present your sort of favorite or best examples. Um but you don't always get to dive into some of the like nerdy details, especially, you know, as with all projects, there's some examples that are like immediately compelling and everyone sort of latches onto. And then there's others that Catherine and I think are really interesting or valuable, but they might not be like jump off the page at you. And so we're doing this book club with the idea that we'll just focus on one chapter each week. Um, and that will really give us a chance to dive into um, sort of each of the main points that we make in the book and then each of the main examples that we connect with those points. So, yeah. So maybe just to sort of like back up a little bit, like the book, um, we it's these principles for essentially like doing better data science or data science informed by the principles of intersectional feminism. And so each chapter is like one of these principles. Um, and so, yeah, so, uh, you can tune into the book club. It's on Fridays at noon. Um, we do some slides. We do some talking. We do some Q and A. Um, and I'm trying to like I don't know, Catherine, about you. We actually haven't debriefed on the format or like who we, how we've been thinking about it. But I've been thinking about it as like the best version of like a college lecture, where you know, like there's a good slide deck that <laughs> the people have really prepared. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you get a little bit like you're sort of forced to do a deep dive into some of the theory, like that's one of the things that we're making, making sure people see is like what the words look like that some of the theorists we cite, uh, like what they actually wrote and what, what we take that to mean. But then we also get to talk through some of the examples that we really like. And it's fun too, because, you know, these examples feel really familiar to me and Catherine because we've been working on this project for years and years, but they're new to the audience. Right. And so it's really nice to see the audience get excited by the stuff you know like in real time
3: yeah and it's had a really active um like there's a really active chats channel on it actually cuz so, so like um almost 400 people have been tuning in so far each week oh, wow. and then like yeah it's kind of insane like i'm amazed that so many people are like interested in following this and then it's kind of like if y'all have ever been on Twitch where the chat goes super fast. Like I keep trying to monitor it <laughs> and then the people are like blah, blah blah. Well what about blah and like over I've put that in a Google Doc. Here it is and you know like sharing kind of different things and um sharing other resources like things that we don't mention but that are related to something that we're mentioning. So that has been really exciting to see that um I don't know there's like kind of a loose community that's developing. One person made a Twitter list of all the people who are participating. <clears throat> Another person or the whole group started a big Google doc where everyone's putting stuff that's helpful. So yeah, it's kind of neat. It's like, feels like we're doing it in community, except we don't know all the people personally.
4: (laughs) Um, No, I mean, I was like, like, that's the nice thing. Like first when we started, I was like, Oh, I think the only people are going to sign up are like my mom.
3: Zane. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my dad Um, and like
4: two other colleagues or something, maybe. Right, right. The colleagues of that kid. Uh, But no, but it's been people from all over the world. And like some of the names I recognize, and they're not even people, you know, not even my academic friends, but like a long time ago, I was a bike messenger. And there's like one of my bike messenger friends on there, and um, like one of our former babysitters um, who's now a public health person. You know, it's like, it's just, it's like, it's like a, it's really nice.
1: I think something that we've, we've talked about between Stanley, Khadija, and I a lot is, is kind of, okay, there's some desire by a lot of people to just return to normal versus this desire of like, well, what is, what is actually the fundamental change we can advocate for in this time? Because, you know, everything seems to be in flux. And I really, I really like what you're describing because it's a kind of a new vision of, of community creation enabled by technology while we're all kind of stuck at home like that's very cool and exciting that you get to engage with a community like that Um, but in that context when you wrote the book who was your intended audience and then now that you're kind of engaging with the community in this very new way what what do you kind of see the audience becoming
3: Lauren, you want to take that?
4: Sure. Yeah. I mean, we thought a lot about this as we were writing the book because the book, it's a trade book. So it's designed, you know, like trade book, they say it's like for a general audience. But we knew, you know, like the intersection between people who care about data and people who care about feminism. You know, it's not like everyone in the world, Um, although we hope it we think it should be. So we were, I think we sort of had as a like two main audiences. So on the one hand, people working with data and data scientists who sort of wanted a more specific way to do to sort of like do good with data, right? You know, there's a lot of people who have these technical skills and, um, you know, want to use them, you know, to pursue, uh, you know, issues of social justice and reduce inequality and things like this. But The cards are sort of stacked against them because it's hard to do that with data unless you're really intentional about it. So we sort of wanted to speak to those people and give them some really clear uh, sort of concepts and methods and examples of ways to do that. But then the flip side is we also were interested in feminists and people committed to justice and intervening into issues of inequality and injustice that they saw in their communities and in their lives and who sort of might not have realized how data could help them and we can talk more about this later but like that's actually not like a neutral statement right Um, because data is not uniformly good right but we did wanted to try to show some ways in which those two things could come together
3: yeah and like i guess the only thing i'll I'll add yeah i think that's probably exactly kind of what we were intending and um i think we also wanted to think about it as a little bit of a primer for folks on either side of that equation. So like a kind of primer in feminists and especially, specifically intersectional feminist thinking Um, for kind of data tech oriented folks and then primer in data and data science, both the potential harms and the potential benefits um, for folks who are newcomers to the data space. And we try to make it accessible, like uh, we'll see, like sort of in, in terms of like who buys the book and stuff like that. But it is one of the broad goals is we're trying to be broad and like intentionally broad so that we can speak to folks who care about data and justice in a kind of broad way, because it's a really broad space. And sometimes what happens is like, you know, a lot of people are talking about like algorithms and bias and big data and all this stuff. But it's like for public policy or specifically in law or specifically in um, computer science. And those worlds don't always talk to each other. So, you know, kind of trying to um, go go broad rather than go very deep and sort of niche academics.
0: Well, to be fully transparent, um, Catherine, I-, I wanted to share with our listeners that I met you in November last year in Austin when we participated in a workshop around grassroots organizing in tech at CSCW.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, the I always forget what the acronym, Computer Supported Cooperative Work.
3: Yeah, um, I think that's right. And,
0: yeah. And then one of the reasons I was really excited to have you on the show when I saw the book come out was that a lot of times I feel like the critical theory in the humanities um, is somewhat divorced from the application of the science. And I remember you talking about the press pump hackathon and really thinking about how do we intervene not just on the level of impact and how does, like, for example, I'm a lot in the algorithmic accountability space and kind of looking at the first-person experience from um, the point in the supply chain when people are already experiencing it to how can we actually do community-led design and, you know, what are even, um, what are, what should even be prioritized in that? And so thinking about reproductive justice, and could you share a little bit about how you see these ethical commitments that are made in the book kind of being applied? Because sometimes, especially in the tech space, I think that everybody is holding up the banner of inclusion and talking about bias, but then the reality is that, you know, a lot of the inequities and probably even more so now, you know, kind of persist. So what are the things that you're excited about kind of in the application part?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that we feel, I mean, one of the like main reasons for writing the book is we just feel like um, a feminist, an intersectional feminist perspective brings a really clear analysis of power. And and by power, we mean structural oppression and structural privilege. Um, And so I think this is one of the things that you know, one of the motivations for writing the book was like, as all this work on ethics and uh, fairness and accountability was coming out, there really was no analysis of structural power, like this idea that like, you know, different bodies don't come equally to the present moment, we don't have an equal distribution of life chances, right. Um, And so thinking about, like the ethics conversations when they remain in like the kind of abstract philosophical realm of like, You know, which person gets hit by the trolley or whatever seem to just avoid those questions. Um, And they're complicated questions and they're uncomfortable questions, especially for people who are mostly kind of in power and mainstream tech and computer science, which are mostly white, mostly men, uh, mostly very elite and educated and so on. Um, They're questions that like those folks don't have a vocabulary for addressing or talking about and so like part of the goal is to sort of provide that vocabulary but also insert those issues into the conversation and say like hey we have like no hope of developing like anti-racist or non-sexist data products if we can't even like talk about these things um and so i think that's that's what sort of um exciting is really thinking about and 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 we i I should say too like gotten some pushback because i think sometimes or at least for me when i've spoken to more technical audiences about this um people will like raise their hand and they'll be like oh well you talked about these principles but like you you know you didn't really talk about like the um data analysis stage or something like this like i think they they want like oh like a very clear you know, like a statistical method which could like de bias your data or something like that. Um, and it's on purpose that we're not talking about that specifically because we we feel like so much needs to be thought about be- before you get to the point of like even doing the data analysis. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we need to like back up. And one of the things that we say is feminism is really helpful for asking who questions, meaning like who leads the team, like who funds the project, who does the data thing benefit um who does it harm um who does the work and like these are in a sense the more um basic but also more uh, uncomfortable and complicated questions that we need to ask before we get to the point of like you know which like uh which statistical method are you going to use which i think there is work to be done there too around fairness and accountability just to be clear but like um there were just so many larger and more looming things to to try to address where we're hoping that people can sort of take a step back and really start to see how uh, power kind of infects the data processing pipeline at every stage. Um, And Lauren, what do you, maybe you jump in here.
4: Yeah. I mean, everything, you know, plus one to everything that Catherine said. Um, I mean, I guess the th- the thing that, you know, so I work, I, I have this like weird position now. I used to work at Georgia Tech for a very long time, um, which was sort of proudly, it's like a proudly interdisciplinary department. But now I have a 50-50 joint appointment where I'm half in English, which is like a pretty traditional English department, very much sort of uh, rooted in the humanities. And then I'm half in a data science department. And you know, one of the things that I so I like I I am in an environment in which I'm around like modelers and testers and, you know, people who spend a really long time and like in many cases sort of their life work is devoting to, you know, some people are like, oh, well, I, like what I work on is like testing or validation or, um, you know, hidden variables or whatever. Um, but I actually feel like one of the things we try to do is say, like, look, you know these ideas about intersectional feminism, they're also about modeling too. like everything that we do is about sort of abstracting the complexity of the world into some sort of concept or a system that you can understand, right? Um, But the modeling doesn't just take place, like after you've collected the data, and you're just trying to figure out like, what's the dependent variable? Um, You actually need to think about sort of the entire Like the entire system that sort of led to that point, Um, you know, which is why we talk about process so much in the book, because really, you know, if your goal is, you know, creating, as Catherine said, like some sort of anti-racist algorithm or a non-sexist product, like you're not going to do that if all you do is like just in the validation phase, go like, "Uh uh-oh, like didn't work so well when we did an intersectional analysis. You need to ask yourself, like, well, how do we get here in the first place? Um, What are these systems that are producing that are sort of leading us to this point? Um, and that's where like a whole second set of models, the ones that come from intersectional feminism, and particularly the ones that have to do about power can be really helpful.
2: So I do have a question. I, I wonder how much pushback you've received since the release of this book. Um, I know that you talk about some of the masculinist approaches to data science that um, I think you all pretty effectively challenge in the book. Uh, but since releasing the book, what resistance have you continued to see? Um, From different scientists or maybe fellow academics who kind of reject or are still uneasy around this idea of introducing power and allowing for bias or complexity or confusion in the data?
4: I would say, like, the most one of the most interesting, Catherine, I'll be interested to hear what you say to this, but one of the most interesting bits of pushback we get is, well, that isn't feminine data, feminism, that's not feminist, that's just good design. And I find that one really interesting because I think. On the one hand, it speaks to uh, the reality that feminist thinking, like very, very broadly conceived, you know, on the one hand, sort of like activism and organizing that has taken place over the past, like several decades, if not centuries, really has actually done a lot of the work of centering conversations about power and privilege, right? So like, that's super interesting to me is that a lot, you know, some of these conversations and the people who feel like they've sort of internalized these principles um, don't see some and it's not the whole origin, but like, don't see a large source of some of these ideas. Um, and then the second, I think, is sort of, it is sort of masking a problem, which is that it is, a lot of people claim to have these ideas in the abstract, but when they're anchored in real questions of injustice or inequality that have to do with people and biases and oppression and privilege, like that's where it gets super uncomfortable. And I think also sort of stopping yourself before you say, you know, my design principles are coming from a place where I examine unequal power relations, or I name the racism or sexism or ableism or whatever it is that I encounter in the world, like that's also a little bit of a way of avoiding uncomfortable conversations, which we actually we talk about a lot in the book, Um, sort of the input, both the importance of having those conversations and the reality that especially for people in positions of relative privilege, like they're going to be uncomfortable. And a lot of the times you might say the wrong thing. Um, and you might need to sort of return to your statements and reevaluate or be told by someone else um, that you might not have gotten it at all as figured out as you. Yeah, can.
3: yeah, totally. Um, I've gotten that one a lot. Actually, the one about, oh, this is just good data science. Like this is just what we should all be doing. And at first I was like, yeah, it is. And then as I, as, I, as I thought about it more, I was like, no, I think that actually they're missing the point because if we're really taking a feminist perspective, like the feminist perspective would say the the kind of root problems that we're addressing, especially when data have to do with people, have to do with inequality. And thus we would prioritize those like subjects of data science or those like topic areas or research areas that we go into and just frame everything around that. And I actually don't see that much of that coming out of like straightforward academic corporate or government data science, you know? So I think like there's, there's maybe a little bit of a misunderstanding or or maybe I would, I would push back on the folks that are saying that I just, I, I think, I feel like I, I personally need to come up with like a better answer for them <laughs> to like have like in the in, in the back pocket. But then another interesting pushback that we got, um, maybe we should talk about like we did kind of an open writing process. We posted the draft of data feminism online and invited people to comment on it back in late 2018, um, which was a super interesting process. We We did like peer review basically online and then traditional peer review where we got some anonymous reviews. And one of the things that came up in the course of the open peer review was people would comment on things that we were saying, you know, we have examples in the book of, um, like community groups making murals with data, for example. So they would like do a community based project and then um, design and paint this like mural that's a data driven mural, kind of like an infographic, but like outdoors in a specific place. So on examples like that, people would say things like, oh, these are nice, feel good examples, um, but they don't really add to your argument and stuff like this. Like basically what they were saying is like, oh, these kinds of things do not, count as data science. And so this made Lauren and I really talk about this. And we then we revised our first chapter to say like, okay, when we're doing feminist data science, actually, we need to redefine data science to encompass a lot more things than the people who were previously reading this book think of as data science. So like in their minds, or at least these couple of people's minds, you know, data science is done by people with PhDs, by credentialed folks, by people in academia or high status people within industry or something like that. Um, And what we try to do in the book is assert like a much more populous frame and also assert that folks are out there who are doing data science um, are community based organizations. And in fact, they're designing much more appropriate outputs than like an interactive screen-based bar chart or whatever. Um, So like a community data mural is like an appropriate output for that particular audience, for that particular sort of thing that they're doing. Um, And so we try to cast a wide net and say like, data journalism belongs there. Community-based organizing that involves data goes there. Counter data collection efforts go there murals go there uh you know all this kind of stuff um we consider that to be data science so we're like really redefining it and so i think that's uh, that was something that we had to clarify because you know i think we were we implicitly did that in the first draft and then we were surprised when there was pushback of like oh these are nice little community things but kind of who cares you know (laughs) and i was like wow i can't believe especially the particular people that wrote that I was like i can't believe you don't see that connected to your work because the particular people are like doing this really great sort of data justice oriented computational work and i was like oh wow this is a problem if like they don't see the connection between these things here <laughs> so
0: yeah that's really helpful i mean i think one of the things that you guys do really effectively in the book in addition to kind of expanding um, the definition of data science itself is really emphasizing emotional care work then that was one of the things that really resonated with me when we were at that workshop at CSCW, when you were talking about the Breast pump Hackathon. One of the things that I remember was that, I think you said it was like the longest yeah. amount of time that was ever right. spent in organizing it. It was 18 months, wrong. It was, was a year I was like,
3: like, wait, why? And I, they, my friends would see me and they'd be like, how are you? And oh, my God, I'm so stressed out, this hackathon. And they're like, why is this hackathon so stressful? <laughs> you know, I was like, why are you
0: ple- spending so much time on this, Catherine? <laughs> But that's part of it what it is, right? Developing all these relationships and that's a lot of actually what I end up doing in my work and putting together these public convenings. And people, academics, when they come, they're like, There's so many black people. Yeah. How did this happen? Can I share my stuff on on your listserv so that I can get black people to come to my stuff? How do you make this happen? And I'm like, we live in New York City. You have to actually go out and meet people and form relationships exactly. beyond the scope of, like, what do you want from them in that moment, but that are, like, reciprocal and that you hang out with them. Like, this is possible. Um, so I think making that legible is, like, a, a, a yeah. big piece of what I, I appreciated from data feminism. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you guys is that I I don't know if you agree with this assessment, and I'm kind of cynical, but I've been really fascinated and disappointed with what feels like a lack of leadership in tech at this moment when there was a lot of the volume was pretty high on people talking about social inequity and fairness and community-based design. I mean, for whatever the shortcomings are of that conversation. Um, And now it's been pretty silent. I mean, I hear some about EdTech Mm -hmm. and Zoom, a lot about contact tracing apps. Uh, We actually had Seda Gerses and Miriam Marach and MK and Helen Pritchard, from the Institute of Public Technology last week uh, mm. to discuss the the COVID nineteen contact tracing apps, but I was wondering, if you guys, have you thought about the development of these apps in particular? Just kind of as an example to think about where are the the points that we can intervene now, because the pace at which the way society is organized and like power is being consolidated right now is, is di- seems different. Even if there's a timelessness to misogyny and racism that like predates it uh, as far as how things are changing in the way that we relate to each other and that we're so reliant on uh,
4: all of this software. Do you, do you have a take on that? Okay. So one of the things that I was going to say is that, you know, we've just been talking about the fact that these feminist principles take time to implement and building relationships take time. And what we don't have right now is time. Right. And it's particularly in these moments of crisis. And, you know, a lot of people have talked about this when, sort of the state, like the opportunity for the state or these large corporations, their opportunities to intervene and not just intervene in helpful ways, but also to 100% insert whatever their agenda was beforehand to do it without being questioned. Um, Because we're in this time of crisis when people are more open to accepting, you know, what's perceived as a solution or a fix, right? So it's a really dangerous time. Um, But, you know, I think we've all heard this discussion, like it also could potentially be a valuable time, because people are open to change. And so even if the time that's being, you know, we don't have the time now, feminists and people doing community based work, and uh, those in organizing communities, you know, we've been, we've been thinking about this for a long time, right? So we already know what the problems will be. um, And we don't need to spend time thinking about those now. So I think it's, you know, it's a really Important for people to speak up and say, like, look, we already know what's going to happen. You know, this might be COVID, might be a new thing we're facing, but the general, the general framework of like, here is a crisis. There's a gap of leadership. Someone's going to have to step in. Who's going to step in, and in what ways? Like, we've seen this a million times before. So, I think being really attentive to those moments and um, be ready to sort of speak up, and uh, you know, the minute you see one of these moves to hold whoever it is, who's, who's calling for it accountable. And I think, you know, it's tough because corporations and governments right now have a lot of power. We talk about this book, they have all the data, right? And so the people with the data are the ones who have the most power to sort of direct the course of affairs. But we have seen, for instance, in the case of um, the issue of like the racial disparities in mortality rates among COVID victims, right? Like, At first, people were like, oh, you know, um, like, it's the equal opportunity killer, right? It doesn't matter who you are. And then there was a little bit more data that started showing that Black people, at least in the United States, were dying disproportionately in relationship to white people. And then there were people saying like, oh, well, it's only because of, um, you know, Environmental factors, and then you know people came back to so like, no, actually like those environmental fa- factors like those are structural racism, right like what you're trying to s- explain away have to do with these historical and ongoing patterns of discrimination and oppression that sort of are experienced in these these communities and locations where black people in the United States live, and this has to do with like this you know the long history of racism in our country. And so I think we've seen a little bit of that. I guess the question is like, how? What can we do to amplify those perspectives and try to get them heard by the people who have the capacity right now to design the apps and get them adopted by government and things like this?
3: Yeah, yeah I, I mean, like I think like the, <clears throat> you know, one of the things we say is, uh, you know, so a, an approach that is informed by intersectional feminism would have anticipated these kinds of inequities right because we see the same uh racial inequities uh class-based inequities across all other aspects of health and so one of the things we keep raising we raise a couple times in the book is like why are we constantly or at least in the the way that it's portrayed in the media when the media is like oh my gosh the algorithm is racist how could that happen you know like, how did it not see Joy Boll and Winnie's face when she was doing that art project or whatever? Um, you know, we, that's like a perspective that is uh, sort of innocent of the fact that sexism exists, innocent of the fact that racism exists. And there's just a way to like flip the order of those things and say, okay, we acknowledge racism and sexism and thus it informs our preparedness and policy. So to me, it's like a very easy... Like if it were different, you know, like a kind of feminist approach to to COVID would have anticipated exactly these kinds of inequalities, informed by a public health lens, and would have said, okay, you know, we know that these particular communities are going to be the most vulnerable. Here, the most vulnerable demographics. That's where we're going to prioritize our limited amount of uh, protective equipment, of testing, um, of so on, because we we know these are the, going to be the communities and the groups that are the the hardest hit, you know? Um, And yet, you know, we're not even, especially when it comes to COVID data right now, we're not collecting uh, sex data. We're not collecting race and ethnicity data. Um, And so it's like, it's like, it's after the fact. And so you have some really amazing groups stepping in like data for black lives is currently doing an effort to crowdsource, which States and counties are collecting race and ethnicity data and push uh states who are not to to start logging and collecting in that way. But it's like this would have been set up from the get-go with a a gender informed and race informed um sort of way of doing this. But like, I don't know, that's but I mean maybe that's one just small point of failure in what is like a sea of failures in the u.s response to covid as well <laughs> so like so it's not surprising to me that they failed on that point because they're just failing on so many things right now um but i think that that's where it, like like that's where we could have gotten had we um sort of anticipated that there would be gender-based effects or race-based effects of this pandemic right and this is not unheard of for a government to plan and do things this way either, like. Um, a really interesting example in Canada and the Canadian context is they have this thing called a GBA plus, which is basically like a kind of a policy training framework for their civil servants where every policy or program that gets proposed, the, um, they have to do a kind of gender analysis of whether or not that policy will have differential gender effects, you know? So it's a little bit of like a, pre-audit or something like it, it at least asks folks within government to consider the effects in a this differential way based on gender um so I, I think there's totally mechanisms for this like there are ways to do this that are fairly straightforward but we're not doing them so yeah
0: no, I hear you. I, thank you. I guess part of what I'm thinking, I mean, in in, in New York, Andrew Cuomo, um, after Dr. Fauci gave the federal press conference, talking finally acknowledging what people on the front lines have been reporting that Black people are disproportionately dying of COVID-19, or disproportionately represented um, in the intensive care unit, and have higher mortality rates, and are less likely to be prioritized for. Um, a ventilator because of underlying conditions like diabetes, heart disease that are not due to personal uh, failures, but have a lot to do with the history of redlining in this country. Black people disproportionately being located next to superfund sites, having, um, you know, Flint, you know, other environmental disasters on top of like the chronic stress mm. of um, being subject to being black in America. Um And after that, Cuomo said, you know, he wanted to, he wanted to fund a study so that people could understand (laughs) health inequities. And it was just this really frustrating moment. And I mean, it was great to have all these people on Twitter who are like, as a matter of fact, there are entire departments (laughs) that are dedicated to this research. And there's people who have written tomes on this topic. And that's why I'm kind of pushing you guys, but also all of us, like those of us who have these ethical commitments, we are not surprised that once again, kind of what is being implemented in this moment is, you know, racist, not thinking about women. Yeah. I mean, the, the impact of maternal health when they've now backed up on this I policy, but it. then the partners were being yeah, banned yeah. from supporting uh, women who were in labor. Although some places have now backed up and are allowing at least there to be one support person. But the implications of that policy when we already know what can happen in in labor and delivery when there's no when there are witnesses and then to have none. I mean, that would have been crazy. Right. But kind of thinking I bring up the contact tracing app because I think that it's a concrete expression of kind of the tension between on one hand, you have this opportunity for decentralization And for example, like with your study group, where now all of a sudden somebody can get a leading person in their field in their living room and get like this immediate access to engage and have it back and forth in a way that maybe wouldn't have been possible if we had in-person convenings for people who are, um, who don't have childcare, who had mobility issues or had like a myriad of reasons to have barriers to that conversation. But on the flip side, like with the contact tracing apps, you have um, Apple proposing that maybe we'll just put this uh, way to to trace people either through Bluetooth or whatever into the operating system, which just like circumvents um, like a democratic process where people can decide whether they want to opt in or opt out to it, regardless of whether it works. I mean, that's like another a whole nother question. And kind of what you talk about as big dick data. Right. So what in this moment, you know, I'm just thinking of people who are listening right now who are essential workers and are hearing that maybe they should get uh, they should adopt this app so that they can work more freely and they can have the ability to support their family or are sitting in Rikers right now and trying to figure out how they can get out. I mean, another mm-hmm. thing that I appreciated from your book was you talk about Mimi Anuha and uh, her work as an artist on uh, the library of missing data sets. And so I'm just thinking, you know, you mentioned some of the areas, but where's the data missing? And I think what was unique in New York, at least they, when they do these press conferences on Twitter, you had people pushing back early on in March asking, where is where is yeah. the mortality in hospital admissions data by race, everyday people? So I mean, I think that's one of the areas we've been successful. But can you guys speak to specific examples and some of your positions of what are ways that we can intervene now when we don't have the gift of time? And, you know, uh, people who are at the margins that bring this kind of lived experience with intersectional feminism may not have a platform? And I know part of it is giving them a platform, but what are some key areas that you think we should be yeah, paying attention well, it's, to right so, Yeah, that's
3: so many, so many thoughts in on that one question. The, um you know, on the, on the thing of like data, I, I mean, I think one of the things we talk about in the book is uh, the da- data are a double-edged sword, right? Um Even if, so we, we have this problem of missing data which we do talk about a good amount right and and so we might frame the contact tracing as like oh this is a problem of missing data if we just had that data then like we would be able to um you know take action and uh, people would know more about whether they've been uh, in contact with people government officials could go potentially track them down and so on um but one of the things you also see in the book is that you know the data alone do not save us and like this is also, you know, the fact, especially when it comes to structural inequalities, like produced by racism and sexism and so on, where like, uh, we actually quote this, there's this great blog post titled, your need for statistical proof is racist, because it's sort of like this thing of like, why we have the proof, right? Like, if we're looking for proof that like, sexism and racism exists, like, it's there like we don't in a way like we don't need another study like this has been happening over and over and over again so it's like we don't need another study to say like oh like look there's like uh race or sex or gender effects of this particular especially with health especially with health inequities in the us so so there's that on the one hand and i think the other thing is like sort of data are not a data are not a substitution for either collective action, nor are they a substitution for actually like trust that's been built up by institutions with their citizens. Right. And so the, th- the way I think about the Apple and the, you know, like the contact tracing apps, you know, first of all, it sort of makes me sad that like, why is it that the only institutions in our lives with the scale to be able to implement this quickly are the corporations, you know? So it's just like, that is unfortunate in my mind, because like I don't necessarily trust Apple and Google to uh, <laughs> act in my best interests, being as they are motivated by like quarterly profits and so on. But secondly, there's this thing of like sort of then also what happens to that data. I mean, I actually feel like I would even be in this moment where everything's sort of shifting if I had faith in the ability of our federal government to take the data from a contact tracing app made by Apple and actually do something meaningful with it, I actually feel like I, at least right now, speaking right now, like would be relatively open to that, you know, like in a way that I actually wouldn't have been prior to this health pandemic. And yet, and again, just speaking personally, I have lost pretty much all faith in the ability of the federal government to act in any way that is responsible in this manner. And so we can collect all this contact tracing data, but then how does that get connected to human action? You know, like who takes that data and does something meaningful with it? And like, how do people take action based on it? And how do we use it to inform public health? Like, I don't see that at each of these points where we've said we're doing things um, like, just to tell an anecdote, my partner's involved in, or w- his prior job was um, working with these uh, sensors that monitor uh, vaccines and medicines and things like that. And they were going to actually. Once the Trump uh, Trumpet announced that we were going to start doing um, testing at uh, Walmart's and testing with uh, Walgreens and CVS and stuff like that, um, their companies started having these conversations um, with folks. But it's it was messy and there was there's no clear way um, forward. The corporations like Walmart and Walgreens were announced that they were participating even before they were. There was no plan for actually setting up testing centers in those actual locations. Like there's no leadership. No one was moving it forward. And so like, I think that's kind of what I mean is like, you know, to actually, if we're actually going to use data to make the world a better place, like we need people who can do those things of translating it into action. And like that also involves trust. And we have just this huge erosion of trust right now or i feel <laughs> my 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 trust is at an all-time low <laughs> so, so lauren lauren i don't know what about you like does your <laughs>
4: No, I mean I 100% agree with all that. Like, so one 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 quick point that I just want to make that like may be a no brainer to people to listeners, but I think we should say is one the assumption that everyone has a smartphone and that it's a one to one ratio that they're not smartphones that are shared among family members. If you have them, you know, I think that's like that's something that many people are overlooking. And it's like, is the government going to give everyone a smartphone if? Um, contact tracing is required. And if not, then you immediately need to be thinking about who is not captured and therefore who will not be, you know, quote liberated um, under this app. You know, I will say on a more specific point, one interesting take that I saw that it hadn't occurred to me, but I actually like the more I thought about it, I thought it was an interesting approach was, you know, okay, well, given that no one, like not knowing that I and Catherine and many listeners presumably don't trust the federal government and don't trust these corporations to do anything good with data. Um, one interesting sort of possible response that I think I would not, that may work a little bit to bring back some of that trust, trust is not to propose collecting new data, But if like the Apples and the Googles and the Amazons of the world said, okay, we're going to actually, what we're going to do is we actually already have a lot of data on where everyone is, which is totally true. Like they have this information already. We're just going to make public and open or not necessarily public and open, but sort of release to whatever organization, the government, again, with the caveat that we don't trust the government, like CDC, maybe. um, We're going to make our existing data, which previously we had held to be proprietary because it was our revenue base. We're going to make that available to researchers and to um, potential data analysts in order to help the public good. And I think that is an interesting approach because it shows that, I mean, in effect, the corporate, not that they would do this, but what the, the effect would be the government, the organization saying, look, we're ceding a little bit of our power, right? Like we're giving up something that we know if we keep it private is what allows us to retain our our financial resources, and therefore our positions of power over everyone else. Um, And I think it would also have the effect of creating a little bit more trust by saying, you know, because there's this big question, it's like, what do companies know about us? And we can point to any number of sort of counter, not just data collection apps, but like sort of data monitoring apps that try to show you like, this is what corporations know about you. Like, this is a big question. And it's what one of the things that makes us not trust these corporations. But it's like that would, again, be sort of a both a helpful and a symbolic gesture to say, like, we'll become a little bit more transparent. um, And we'll sort of disclose to you the things that we've been doing all along. And again, you know, it doesn't change the fact that the corporations have this data that they're collecting it, that it's collected unequally, and that it will certainly be wielded to unequal effects. But I thought it was an interesting, like, given the situation, sort of what are some things that might shift the like sort of shift the balance a little bit and i hadn't thought about that so anyway so that's something that it's like an interesting thought experiment
1: yeah i i think one of the things that's really i mean terrifying but maybe also uh not is we're we're facing this thing where we have these these like truly massive institutions that are that are failing us whether it's the government or large large tech companies and in, in the context of, of contact tracing, you saw a whole bunch of initiatives get started. And in the, in the interview last week, we, we talked at length about one called DP3T, uh, which is kind of the, the more the more open source one where they're they're posting on, on GitHub about it. Um, and one of the cool things there was you know, someone posts this issue. Not everyone might have smartphones. And you immediately see kind of an organic response of, oh, well, well, all the things we're discussing here could theoretically be implemented on a on a kind of small Bluetooth microcontroller that, that could be produced for $5, right? And, and then you see people just kind of organically working on that. Again, we can talk about like the failures of, of contact tracing or successes, but but this kind of open source model. And uh, it made me think to some extent about uh, your uh, Catherine, your 2019 Kai mm-hmm. paper about hackathons again. I, I, I build stuff in, in a great deal of my work. Um, I've done one hackathon oh, no. <laughs> in my life, and I absolutely despised it. Uh, I I think I think a lot of hackathons, and I, I'm at an institution that's constantly running hackathons, and I I get to be around them all the time. And I have to say that, like, my impression of them is that generally <laughs> they produce bad engineering and bad design, and and that's that's kind of you know you you guys really address this in the paper, and I I hope we'll link to it in the show notes that. Um, Right, like if you have, you know, twenty-four, thirty-six hours, forty-eight hours, however, seventy-two, right? Like this finite amount of time where people are supposed to be working intensely on this one thing, just the mm-hmm. act of doing that is excluding a ton of people, right? Like, I know for a fact Khadija has five kids she has to take care of, and I'm not gonna invite her to that mm-hmm. hackathon. And that's a voice that, that's like very clearly lost by yeah. by by the structure of a lot of hackathons. Um, and I think the work that you guys did in that paper to discuss, uh, like these are general failures of hackathons, and here's ways they can be addressed in the design and implementation of what a hackathon is and what it might look like. And I wanna, I wanna push you guys just what in in the context of where we are now. We're all we're all kind of working remotely. We're not really doing hackathons in that way. And you you kind of saw this like desire by makers to like build Mm -hmm. a a a ventilator and then there was a ton of pushback on that because you know hackathons (laughs) for medical devices are like complicated and and, uh, it's a little scary to to imagine like me three i know oh my god but but i am curious using kind of the the model you take in thinking about well how can we redesign a hackathon for it to be more inclusive or more able to uh, uh, solve problems on a more systematic level rather than just like, Hey, here's a bandaid to this one right. issue we've proposed now get in a room for 72 hours in the current context yeah. of like, we're all at home. and, and uh,
3: Yeah. 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 I totally, I mean, I totally agree with you on um, like the majority of hackathons.
2: I mean, it ha- and
3: in a way, you know, someone has to write a history of hackathons, but like, you know, they are a very, like, I'm not sure. I think they came out of more open source culture at first, but then they definitely, you know, in like around the 2010 or whatever, got co-opted into a much more sort of corporate model. And I think corporate corporations looked at them as ways to recruit uh, recruit people and um, so on. And I think, but so, yeah, so our work on hackathons, I think, was very much about, um, in a way, just appropriating the form as well as the fashionable likeness of it <laughs> in certain tech circles, um, and and then just using it for different ends. So like rather than thinking of a hackathon as a great way to produce a startup business or as a great way for a corporation to find a software developer, um, we really looked at it as a collective, in a way like a collective organizing strategy. And specifically, a way to bring people together around uh, stigmatized topics, and um, in the case of our hackathons, like maternal health and breastfeeding. And then, actually, we are doing another um, another hackathon. Maybe (laughs) is coming up about menstruation. But we're currently, it's funny you brought up the virtual thing because we are currently having discussions of what should we do the menstruation hackathon virtually, and then would that potentially open up more. And better and different ways for people to participate, you know, rather than looking at the thing of it, us it being a barrier for people to come together in person. What what might the new things that that affords if we're all virtual, you know, how what what might that sort of uh, help produce in the world because I think it's true what you're seeing about how exclusive hackathons are yeah like totally totally and I've I've felt that about like a lot of things that have to do with open source culture a lot of them involve you know your body being present you having a concentrated time to like focus on something Uh, long hours at the hackathon you know it's just these are just not realities especially for people who have kids uh, for disabled folks for folks that maybe live in rural areas right like it's just so many ways that we're excluding so that's one thing i'm excited to think about in regards to the menstruation hackathon um but yeah i think it's been more broadly like thinking about um yeah I, i guess i have complex feelings about the building like building things and then imagining how far those things can go because to make things that are truly impactful we need to operate from a base of already having the Um, relationships and some of the expertise with community groups that will make them impactful, if that makes sense. Um, And so on the one hand, it's exciting when maker communities jump in and are like, let's do this, you know. Um, And yet on the other hand, I I guess what I always want to see in those communities is more connective tissue, like more valuing of um, bringing new people into the conversation, especially folks that may not have the technical skills to as experts to inform the process. And like, what are the ways that we facilitate that kind of um, connective tissue building or relationship building in this new, sort of very virtualized distributed environment? I like. I think that's work that could take place. There could be like this really amazing new processes and models for kind of maker communities and software communities to be talking with uh, folks, but I I don't quite see that happening, and definitely not at any kind of like scale. And so I think that's where you get into that thing of where hackathons just design things for people like themselves, which tend to be you know like beer finding apps in San Francisco or whatever. <laughs> so like, um, but that's but like I think there's a possibility right? Like it's just that we need to recognize that work, that relationship building as work, and then really value it and like say like okay, we ha- here's our connective relationship infrastructure team and it's like 50 people who are going to go out and talk to other people right so like yeah
4: yeah i mean to sort of echo what katherine said i think one of the things that's so frustrating to me about hackathons and Catherine already mentioned this but this sort of belief that the design work starts in the present instead of looking back to the you know years and decades and centuries of work that has sort of taken people to that point. And this denial of expertise is huge, right? This idea that like, oh, if you're going to 3D print a thing or design a new ventilator, that like, all you need is just like someone to give you the plans or give you the specs, and you can take it from there. Um, And I definitely know, like, I really, I think there is something really valuable about bringing people together in a short amount of time to try to advance work in an area, right? Um, But when I've organize events like this it's you know there's there are always domain experts who are equal partners in relationship to the people who have the skills to actually sort of like implement a thing at that very moment it always involves like really intense social engineering to make sure that I actually like I'm super micromanaging in general but like I really like sort of socially engineering groups so that they have a really good balance of domain experts and sort of designers and some newcomers, like grad students or undergrads, um, you know, people with all sorts of experience, some people who have never been before, some people who are experienced. Like, and I think it takes a lot of and again, like the success of these things has far less to do with technical expertise and much more to do with like, did you make a good group or like, did you you like find a, a, a Did everyone have the background that they needed in order to believe in the work that they did at that point? Um, and I think the, you know the other thing about about all, like hackathons too is that you know it's like the the people who are actually we run you run into this a lot with in academic hackathons it's like even the people with the titles that suggest that they should be the ones to be able to do the development work on you know in forty eight hours like can't actually do that because they, it's been you know ten years since they actually you know like wrote code of their own because usually they're just delegating it to their students. So it just, it's a super, it's a super, it's a really interesting challenge. Um, and again, you know, I think it really, like the successes of these things point to the things that we say in the book, which is like, relationships matter, people matter, expertise matter, it's different, different types of expertise matter. Um, and valuing all of those equally um, is really what ultimately leads to any sort of um, successful collaborative project.
0: No, thank you for bringing us to that point. And I mean, I I I feel like a particular point to intervene in is that at this moment in academia specifically, um, there's on one hand all these budget and hiring freezes, but we know the COVID-19 money is coming. So making legible this kind of care work and this relational work that people have been doing for decades, you know, either within the academy, but also community-based organizations that have been invested in maternal health, for example, or in kind of pushing back against uh, state surveillance. Because as that money comes, we need to make sure that the only people, that it's not only the designers and the computer scientists and the coders who are having like a budget line. Um, So I I definitely appreciate that. And I'm also thinking about kind of those of us who are at the margins of of these conversations and are they going to be the first uh, to be let go or have already been furloughed or let go, et cetera. But I really I want to be mindful of time. And we're kind of at the hour and three minute mark. And so um, thank you so much for coming on. And in conclusion, I wanted to ask if you guys had any final points, including wanting to talk about any of your other projects and just mention them so that our listeners can follow up and see what you guys are up to. Lauren, particularly, I know you're coming out with a new book, right?
4: I am. Yeah, it's actually it's so weird. Like time is so weird right now. But yeah, you know, the book that started as my dissertation 10 years ago, maybe more, um, is coming out in less than 2 weeks. It, it it's called An Archive of Taste: Race and Eating in the Early United States and it looks at how if you go back to the people who cooked the food for the nation's founders, many of whom were enslaved, many of whom were women, Um, you can just tell a whole different story about sort of who was responsible for the foundation of this country and, um, sort of what sorts of, uh, principles and values they injected into it. And also it's, um, you know, it's an academic book, but I tried, I tried to tell a good story. So if you're interested in U S history or, uh, or food, (laughs) um, or sort of like the origins of, uh, race and inequality and, ideas about racial difference in our country you might find it interesting um so yeah so that's coming out soon um and yeah I have a I run a lab um it's in the process of moving from Georgia Tech where I was to Emory where I am right now it's called the Digital Humanities Lab and we're at work you know it's me and um, the students who work with me and uh, we just have a bunch of projects that try to think through data and data's history and how we can use data and computational methods to ask some sort of tricky humanistic questions that for the most part, you know, have been answered with historical research and text, close textual analysis, how we can use sort of uh, different scale methods in order to complement that type of work.
0: Cool. I'm definitely looking forward to reading it. And as our ritual is, we like um, to have everybody who comes on, recommend something they're watching, listening to, reading, um, besides your own work. It could be on topic or off. Is there anything specific you'd like to share or recommend?
4: Um, Oh, my gosh. Uh, You know, I have such a long stack of books that I (laughs) intended to read, but now in in the present have not had a ton of time to read. Let's see, you know, the next thing on my list, I will say, is uh, Sasha Katsanjachok's Design Justice uh, book, which came out right around the same time as ours from MIT Press. And um, there's an associated website, uh, the Design Justice Network, and um, that sort of similar data feminism but oriented in a slightly different direction has a set of principles for um, designing with communities and um, justice in mind. And so I, it's next in the stack. I think it's going to be great. Um, I've read some of their previous work. I think uh, I would definitely
3: recommend that people check it out.
0: And Catherine, do you want to make a final comment and share anything that you're reading, listening to, watching?
3: Uh, I just joined MIT as of January. And so I'm really excited. And just started up this lab called the Data Plus Feminism Lab. Um, so we can check that out. Uh, it's data plus feminism, like all spelled out dot MIT dot edu. Um, there's a couple projects there. And we are actually members of the Design Justice Network. So another shout out to uh, Sasha, Sasha Costanza Chalk in the network. And the book that I would like to recommend is Hashtag Activism by Sarah Jackson, Moya Bailey and Brooke Foucault-Wells. Um, which is another book like Sasha's that came out uh, from the same publisher, even as ours at the same time. And all three groups, like we all had our book tours sort of get canceled and are trying to figure out what to do about it. But it, theirs is a great book. I'm kind of in the middle of it right now. And they're talking about um, what are ways that different hashtags on Twitter um, create various kinds of counter publics. So both create solidarity and community among folks that are often marginalized because of their identities, um, and then work to kind of um, challenge dominant narratives about those groups to a more mainstream audience. It's like super interesting mixed methods uh, analysis and written in a very accessible way. And um, we, along with Sasha, along with the three authors of that book, are planning an event right now, probably for sometime in June. So stay tuned for that. It'll be virtual, but it'll be cool. (laughs) Um, hopefully we'll all do like a shared panel or book talk or something like that. So That's it.
1: I, I was looking through some of my notes on, on projects and things that, uh, in relation to the book, just while preparing to speak to you guys today. And I I came across a, a project I kind of saw early on in the, COVID crisis uh, by uh, it's an art project by Sam Levine and Tiga Brain with a, an accompanying essay by uh, Johanna Hedva. Hmm. Um, and what they did is they created an archive from GoFundMe's medical fundraisers hmm. um, and they describe it as an archive of mutual aid in response to a ruthless for-profit health system. Uh, they describe it as an archive that should not exist and it's very simply presented uh, just a list of 200 thousand unique kind of uh uh well wishes people have have sent to each other and the accompanying essays is incredibly beautiful it's it's really about these connections between care and revolution um and i actually just wanted to read the last the, the very last paragraph which um care so often feels as though it has to be given to you by someone else and this can also seem how revolution feels. We wait for the change to be given to us by those in control. We hope for those in power to come to their senses. So many activists know that as power can be taken, it can be taken back. As care can be given, we can also Mm -hmm. take it. I've always found solace in the fact that the words caregiver and caretaker mean the same thing. We take care, we give care, and it can be contagious, it can spread. It shows us that the limit of the world is always a place to be exploded, pushed against, transformed. Meet me there at the end, where there is give and take and let's follow each other into the beginning. Uh, it's the rest of the, the entire essay is, is incredibly beautiful. And uh, Sam Levine and Tiga Brain have done a collection of artworks where they just kind of create these archives beautiful. and present them in I love know,
0: that. very, I love
1: very that stark quote. and beautiful terms. Um, so, yeah.
0: I don't know if you can hear I'm snapping. Thank you, Alon. <laughs> yeah, Stanley.
2: Yeah. Um, so what I'm currently reading uh, is a book called The Nickel Boys, the Nickel boys by Colson Whitehead. Um, and it it's about a reform school that used to exist. I think it closed in the 1940s, um, specifically for black boys in the South. And uh, it follows a narrative of these two boys who are sent to this reform school. And they both resist a lot of the extremely oppressive practices in very different ways. Whereas you see one trying to kind of work through the system, uh, the other is following a more rebellious route. Um, And I just started it. So I'm really excited to see how it goes. Um, But that's currently what I'm reading.
0: Thank you. Um, and thank you, Elon and Stanley, for jumping. In. I really enjoy hosting the show with them. But part of the thing is my kids just came in and started screaming all simultaneously. And so I'm texting them, you share your recommendation. So, I mean, teamwork makes the dream work. Thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I have been trying to get a full night mm. of sleep uh, during the pandemic. So I've really made an active effort to read things outside of tech um, before I go to sleep. So, and I, I subscribe to all these um, yeah. literary magazines when the when the shelter in happened because I just need to read something that's not on a screen. So I subscribe to Granta and the latest issue is beautiful. It has this orange and pink color um, and it's called the, the title of this issue is... Uh, an essay called There Must Be Ways to Organize the World with Language. Um, And there's a story within that by Sadiq Fofana called The Young Entrepreneurs of Miss Bristol's Front Porch. And it's about these tween Black girls. One of them travels to stay with their grandmother every summer and they open up this store on Miss Bristol's front porch, which is they robbed this bodega like a couple of blocks away for like hot chips and blow pops. And they sell it um, to all the other kids in the neighborhood all summer. And they want to save up to get on this TV station. And just the vernacular that is written in, and it has this kind of wistful, Tracy Chapman, fast car kind of narrative. It was just so beautifully written and reminded me of like Sandlot meets Crooklyn um and it's very short it's only maybe like uh (laughs) six to ten pages but it's so good and it just I was actually kind of shocked that it was in Granta (laughs) because even though they're they're showcasing emerging artists I don't see I mean one of the issues with them the Paris Review I mean I don't often see a lot of like black writers and he was he was based in he's based in Harlem and I just really love that story but thank you so, so much, guys. This is the end. This is uh, Thank you so much for coming on We Be Imagining. And also, if you have any other people that you'd like to recommend to come on the show, definitely let us know. Um, for our listeners, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at webeimagining at gmail.com um, with any letters or questions. And also, we're very excited to share that we're now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and most major podcast platforms. Thank you.